G'day listeners, I'm Edgar Greste, and you're listening to the Business of Biodiversity. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, more than 60% of startup businesses fail within three years. And for anyone wanting to develop a business with an environmental focus, it can be really challenging to put a dollar figure on your values. So in this episode, we're talking to environmental entrepreneurs about the journey of turning their passion into a viable business. I have so much admiration for anyone who starts a business. Business is just hard work. I've only learnt this myself for the last five years, having been in government for many years um, and now out on my own and and working. That's Sam Marwood, co-founder of Wild Idea, a business incubator for environmental entrepreneurs. I quit my government job about five years ago uh, to start my businesses, which I'm still running as well. One's a, a farm matchmaking business called Cultivate Farms and I left and moved in with my in-laws to start this. And I thought, yeah, it'll take six months to get my business off the ground. You know, how hard is it? And three and a half years later, I was still living with my in-laws, such great supports, but it is so hard to do this. And I joined as many groups as I could in the business world, especially in the social enterprise world, and found that there was no support programs focused on environmental entrepreneurs. And so I guess this drive for us is, is, is from our own experiences that we want to support environmentally focused entrepreneurs. And so in this time, I, I met Nigel Sharp, who's a, a philanthropist and, and a conservationist, and he owns Mount Rothwell Biodiversity Centre, which is just outside of Melbourne breeding threatened species. And it just blew my mind that an entrepreneur, a business person can do such good for nature. And so I got to know Nigel and over the years, and we decided to set up uh, Odonata. So Nigel set up Odonata and I supported him. And part of that, our mantra is how do we support entrepreneurs? And so starting Wild Idea, coming from my lessons of starting a business and Nigel's you know, many years of starting business into this conservation world, uh, we thought, well, let's start an incubator. Everyone else has got one. Let's do one for the environment. And we think we're the only in a, one in Australia. And it's just been amazing ever since. It's, I guess, given us the structured way for us to support entrepreneurs what do you see are the biggest challenges that people with an environmental focus face when wanting to launch an idea? It's a really good question. I think one of the barriers we've found with, with business and biodiversity is this idea of making money and doing good. There feels to be some sort of a rub there, but we want to encourage it that we need business and businesses need to be able to make money and they need to, and they need to be able to do good at the same time. Uh, and that's absolutely possible. We're proving it and we want to get more and more case studies so that rub isn't so much there anymore. Talk to me about what you're hoping for people to break down for themselves and be able to change their thinking around this space. If you were starting a, just a, any sort of a business, you would constantly be thinking about your revenue streams and how much you would charge for your good or service. But that seems to be a secondary thought for so many of the entre- entrepreneurs we deal with. They are so focused on the problem or the idea that to solve it, to put a dollar value next to that can be really confronting for many of them. So it's how do you get that mindset that, yeah, what I'm offering is a really great solution and it is worth paying for and I know how much people are willing to pay for it and be confident in that, be confident in sending an invoice. Uh, These are the things that um, many of these environmental entrepreneurs probably aren't used to, again, because of that rub contest of environment and business. Uh, but we're, we're trying to say, no, what you're offering is a really great value, really great service, really great good, and you should be charging for it. And that should be built into your business thinking or else it's not going to be a business for very long. 
The first Wild Idea Incubator took place in 2019, with candidates pitching their environmental ideas to Sam and his team. And there are two main things that the panel are looking for. So the things we look for is one, it's got to be an interesting idea, something that we think is needed given our experiences and our network's experiences. So I think that the idea itself has to be pretty solid. But then the rest, I think, really is around the person. Do you wake up every morning busting to solve this problem? And I guess that comes back to if we and others put energy into you and support you, will you just stick at it? Or is this a bit of a flash in the pan idea that... You might pursue, you might not. And I think that persistence, that passion is so key to others wanting to invest into you. It is really hard and scary to be a trailblazer. And there's a lot of stigma in conservation around earning money. But I think we have to treat ourselves with the sustainability that we want for our planet if we keep burning ourselves out and working for free what is our future like that is not sustainable that's jesse panizzolo founder of lonely conservationist who was part of the first wild idea whilst the incubator supports the development of environmental entrepreneurs the program really challenges the mindset of participants i was not feeling myself like i'm usually a very confident person but at that first retreat I was very overcome with imposter syndrome because the world of business is just something that I've never touched on before to the extent that a lot of the jobs that people have in the conservation industry are all volunteer based. And in fact, I've even paid to work in the past. Like that's been my experience in my career is that I go from paying to work to working for free, then getting paid minimum wage. And like, that's the trajectory. So to get into an environment where you have to sell yourself as somebody that can offer something that's worth maybe millions of dollars, that is bewildering to me because everything I've done has never in my past had financial value. So to come from a place where no matter how hard you work, no matter what blood, sweat and tears goes into it, how many hours you put into it, like coming from a place where all that effort has zero financial value to then trying to put that monetary value on yourself that is like something that I, I still even struggle with today. And Jessie's not the only one who feels like this. That's why she founded Lonely Conservationist, an online community supporting budding and burnt out conservationists. What I got out of Wild Idea was just the self growth. And I think for me, seeing where I started from on that first retreat and where I ended up on pitch night, for me, that was this huge transformation that like takes me, I don't know, it just stays with me in everything I do because it was something that was so out of my comfort zone and I didn't die or spontaneously combust into flames. Like I actually got through it and it was successful. That was like one of the best feelings on pitch night to know how much of a roller coaster I had been through to just be able to stand up and present something that people were interested in. I even had to step outside for a bit because I was like, Oh, like I'm, I'm doing it. This is, this is real. Um, just because it seems so impossible in that first week that I would ever get to that stage. I think another thing is also like giving myself the, t- the time to rest. I think a lot of people are so afraid of resting and taking time to just switch off. Whereas like a lot of conservationists are really impacted by burnout. And throughout that process, I was kind of um, overcome with burnout myself. So There was a week recently where I just took a week off and I was like, wherever my mind goes, I would just let it. This is time for me to relax, recuperate. 
I'm going to take initiative and do this before I get sick this time. And I think this whole process gave me the tools to do that because I think before I went into the program, I was very like, there was obviously this brick wall there saying like, do not enter business land. And now the walls and doors of business land are open to me and I can start to navigate that space a bit more. And for you, what's next? Well, I am actually in the midst of a few projects. I am just about to publish a book very soon, which I have written about how to conserve conservationists because I think there's there's not a lot of information about that out there. So I really want to compile all the research that I have, uh, all the experiences that I've accumulated and all the knowledge that I've learned over the past 21 months. I really want to compile that all into start sharing this with everybody. We need to start taking business into our own hands. And even like at the moment, I'm trying to develop another business project because I think that if conservationists are relying on grants or sparse resources, it's really challenging to to get anywhere relying on the limited resources and funding that's available. That whole process really inspired me to kind of take my future into my own hands and try and see where there is room to make an income from environmental protection. Because I think environmental protection is always something that's been necessary. It's always something that's going to be necessary and is really challenging to rely on other people to get the resources needed to go forth and make those changes because these resources may not always be around but the need will always be there. After the incubator finished I attended a private land owners conference in Adelaide and that is where I saw all of what I had learned about business and the environment merging. I saw that actually being applied practically in this conference to the point where I sat in on on a workshop that was like working out the financial value of ecosystem services and I was like I know nothing about this I'm kind of scared to get involved but I did it because I knew how much that would be important in the future and I didn't know how often it would come up so I thought the more I learned about these kind of things the more useful it would be the more I've seen it applied in the real world in a practical sense I've seen how it's been able to help people and how it's been able to have the outcomes that conservationists may not have been able to have just purely from philanthropic philanthropic funding. <laughs> A lot of conservationists don't go to business school, they don't have business training, and like me, they have that wall of like business land, do not enter up in their minds. Um, and I think we need to start equipping conservationists with the tools to create their own ventures and ideas. I'm David Brook and I started a project called OWL BNB, O-W-L BNB, about five years ago, where we recognised that there would be a need for habitat for wildlife in agricultural areas and we looked at ways to encourage landowners and farmers to support wildlife on their properties by exploring win-win benefits, where the farmer would benefit from having the wildlife living there and so would the wildlife. And so the Airbnb was a bit of a play on Airbnb. We provide a bed and breakfast for the owls and we attract owls to farms and agricultural environments 
where they have a safe place to live and they assist in controlling pests, most notably mice and rats that were damaging the food crops. What was it like to have the environment as a core focus going into this program? It was counterintuitive and I found it very difficult to ask people to pay for our services and our ideas because we just wanted to get it done. And so the incubator pulled us up on that a bit and made us realise that our ideas would only ever be limited in their application and only be narrow and there just couldn't be a sustainable ongoing approach to doing what we wanted to do unless people paid for it and could see the value in that. So that was a reminder every day that if we really want this to be able to expand and have impact and scale, then we needed to package up our idea with value. It had to be targeted at a particular market segment. We needed customers and we needed customers that could understand that value proposition and were prepared to pay for it. And then we could provide a really good service and then continue to expand our service. I just wanted to bring it back to the personal journey just briefly. Just take us through a bit of your experience. My natural habitat is out in the forest and I'm quite happy being on my own. I'm quite happy observing and supporting wildlife and flora and fauna species and just seeing it all evolve. The Wild Eye Deer Incubator and the connectivity and, and access to other people with great ideas and a like-minded approach built confidence, really. Confidence is the currency of the world. Without it, nothing happens. Since the Wild Idea Incubator, our business has grown dramatically. And it's because of the partnerships and relationships that we build every day where we're all trying to achieve the same thing. And we can build big ideas with scale, with impact, and have a, a much greater role in achieving what we want to achieve on behalf of Australia's wildlife. Since completing the Wild Idea Incubator, Dave has pivoted the business in response to Australia's wild bushfires that destroyed millions of hectares of habitat for Australia's native and threatened species. We created a business called Wild BNB, and Wild BNB Wildlife Habitat is really focused on large scale habitat deployment across bushfire damaged, fire damaged natural landscapes. And we're now looking at a capability where we have a rapid response habitat deployment immediately after fires so that we can come in in a timely way and uh, support wildlife around the fire ground. And then as the fire ground settles, we can move into the fire ground. Probably was a bit tricky at the time. We just worked all night and all day and the fires were still burning and we knew that the outcome was going to be just intense and disastrous. And we needed to position ourselves very quickly to do whatever we could. We didn't quite know what that was, but we knew that something had to happen. We set a target. We said in January, we're going to support a million wildlife impacted by fire. So that that gave us a stretch, a goal. We set up a large manufacturing base. We built relationships with suppliers and suddenly all of the pieces of the puzzle came together. With the skills and connections he made through the Wild Idea Incubator, David was able to secure funding with the New South Wales government's Saving Our Species program 
and WWF Australia to pivot his business and maximise his conservation impact. We've just completed the installation phase of a, a major project across uh, national parks and Indigenous protected areas in the Northern Rivers that were 100% burnt during the fires. And we've established habitat across these areas to support five different glider species. And we have employed technology, we have 4G enabled cameras on the boxes, we have a university involved, we have a whole lot of partners involved. And since then, we've got five other bushfire related projects. We're about to start a wildlife safe havens project on 30 privately owned properties adjacent to where the bushfires damage the forest. And we have a whole range of other projects. So it was just about looking at getting the pieces of the puzzle in place and then waiting for the opportunity and the partners. And yeah, so Wild BNB just gained momentum. We're kind of turbocharged right at the moment, making that all happen. You've been on this planet a long time. You've seen a lot of the problems that are in the world, but you're also a big part of the solution. What's your hope for the future? Well, there's always hope. The fires really brought things back to the core. Working day by day in these amazing national parks that were completely destroyed by fire, we've been down there installing habitat and watching the forest recover, and it recovers. One time we were in one of the parks, which was really annihilated by the fires, and we're up the trees installing habitat, and two birds came along. And we were so excited because it was the first time we'd seen the birds. The parks were eerily quiet in the early days of working there. And these birds were so excited that there was other forms of life in the park being us. And they followed us around that day from tree to tree as we're installing habitat and doing our thing. And there was just this sense that life was coming back. And then the next week we saw a kangaroo and then Two weeks later, she had a joey in her pouch. And you know, just the slow recovery just meant that everything we were doing was necessary. One stage, we were installing nest boxes and putting our 4G-enabled cameras on them that send a live feed of what was going on. We'd been installing those boxes during the day. We'd get home at night. We'd go online, and there were feather tail gliders or squirrel gliders or sugar gliders sitting on the box or running up the tree on the same day, checking out what we'd done. So there's always hope, but there are more bushfires around the corner and other threats to native vegetation. And so our real focus is generating as much knowledge and sharing that with people and working with other people who are doing the same thing so that we just get better and faster and more effective at everything we do from here on in. David and the other participants developed their businesses through the first Wild Idea Incubator, which ran over three months with weekly training and monthly retreats. And since the impact of COVID-19, the program has shifted fully online. But what does an incubator actually look like? Here's Sam Marwood again. We steal a lot from the, you know, the standard business incubator world in, in that you need to know your, your problem, you need to know your solution, you need to know people willing to buy it, testing early, you know, lean business canvas, we're definitely using all those tr- normal proven methods for pulling a business apart. The thing that we offer, I think that's different, is you are doing that with a cohort of like-minded 
environmental entrepreneurs and business people, as in the people going through the program, but also the network that we as Odonata and you know, Saving Our Species program in New South Wales government have to open doors and to save time. And I think that's the key thing is that if you've got a, an idea but you don't have all the connections in the conservation space, the philanthropy or impact investment space, it takes time for you to get that credibility to open doors and really test to see if what you've got can work. And what we've got is a big cohort of entrepreneurs, businesses uh, uh, and supporters who just love the idea of supporting other entrepreneurs. And as soon as you put, and this is what happens, you put an idea or a person in front of these other people, they go, oh, you need to talk to so-and-so. Have you thought about this? I can sell, I can sell this through this. I can help you this way. And I think that's that network that is the real differentiator not only of your peers and others going through the same ups and downs and pulling apart and putting back together every business idea, but those people in the business world who absolutely get what you're trying to do and will try and find ways to support you because they're probably also thinking, how do I support my own business by leveraging with some really clever people? So I think that's the, that's the differentiation. It's the traditional business incubation, pulling apart, putting back together your business with the support of environmental business people. The applications they received in 2020 were diverse and ranged from online learning platforms for school kids to golf course design and consulting. So what does golf have to do with the business of biodiversity? Well, here's Kate Torgerson, founder of EnviroGolf, to explain more. So Environmental Golf Solutions came about five years ago when I saw a need in the market to provide environmental consultancy to a lot of the clubs. Golf courses have always had a bad name or a bad rap in terms of environmental polluters, but we see golf courses as being a real valuable piece of land throughout our particular urban landscapes. And that's where we provide our services to try and implement more sustainable practices on these golf courses so they can, I suppose, work in with nature and provide a sustainable future for the game of golf. Where did your environmental green thumb come from? Was it pruning bushes in the backyard with grandma or something? Do you have any kind of origin story about your green thumb? You know, as a young person, I always want to walk it, work outdoors and, you know, want to be a ranger. But then, you know, I just fell into a career on a golf course and I saw all the wildflowers, all that kind of stuff flowering. And um, I just wanted to see more of it. And uh, yeah, that's where it came from, really. Doing my apprenticeship on a golf course, just seeing you know, how nature can mirror in with golf persuaded me to sort of pursue this kind of career. And I did move out of the industry for a while and work with councils. And I learned a lot through the bushland management, but I also knew in the back of my head that all of the stuff we were doing in bushland reserves, we could do on golf courses as well. And it wasn't until I went over to the UK and met up with the Golf Environment Organisation, the RNA and the Scottish Golf Environment Group and I saw the kind of programs they were running, the kind of information they were providing to golf courses to educate them. And I just thought that, you know, there's not a lot of this stuff available for golf course managers in Australia. So that's where I thought setting up a business to provide the resources, to do case studies, to do the works, to consult. That's really where I saw a niche in the market. And from there, it's grown to a part-time business to now a full-time business and uh, recently getting David on board to help expand that as well. 
David, how has sort of coming into this business with Kate shifted your thinking around golf course design? Yeah, I've been in the golf industry almost 10 years now. It's just grown on me, the environmental positive effect uh, that good golf course architecture can have. And the work that I've seen Kate do, and I suppose combining hopefully my skills with Kate, I think that we can help take golf from being a problem to a solution. And um, many of the golf courses in Australia try hard, but they just aren't sure where to start. Hopefully between Kate and myself, we can help to educate golf clubs on the opportunities that are out there. Talk to me about the educational challenges and also what you're hoping to do around helping golf courses, clubs have more of an environmental focus and maybe give me an example of some types of things you could implement on golf courses when we think about biodiversity and looking at threatened species as well. I think the biggest main issue is change. A lot of clubs, especially members, they don't like a lot of change around the club. So enhancing particularly the biodiversity on courses would mean, you know, perhaps a few areas would be more dense scrub or grassland. So to them, for the game of golf, they would think that it might slow the game down. They might not be able to hit the ball, say, over that area. Our aim is not to do that. We don't want to slow the game down. We want to look at all those areas out of play, which is many, many sort of hectares out of play that we can convert from mown rough into native vegetation, we can incorporate bee hotels, insect logs, uh, nest boxes. So just utilise that extra bit of land, which would just be used to, I suppose, enhance that biodiversity, reduce mowing costs, reduce labour costs as well. So it's, it's got a lot of positives in that. I think particularly when um, the drought was on, a lot of the courses realised that these out-of-play areas, they just can't get water to them, so they have to look at another solution. It's coming back to that education and changing that mindset that a golf course doesn't need to be mown from fence line to fence line and we need to incorporate more native vegetation for this holistic picture in terms of creating golf and nature. So how do we foster that holistic environmental mindset? Another wild idea does just that. Planet Warrior is an online learning platform for young people with an environmental focus. Here are founders Holly and Amy to explain. We have spent a really long time developing an online program. We have a really snazzy online learning platform that kids log on to and it, it enables us to deliver really cool content, interactive content to kids anywhere in the world. And the programs combines both biology, chemistry, a little bit of physics, earth and space science. It's a multidisciplinary approach basically, so we're combining all the sciences in the context of a sustainable development goal. So when we do things like sharks or plastic pollution, it's all in relation to life below water. The goals themselves, sustainable development goals, are a great, great tool for kids to use to see how many different areas they can actually make a difference in that global issue. I've got three beautiful adventurous boys and they ask a lot of questions that I didn't actually have the answers to. So we teach them at such a young age, then they'll have those skills as an adult and then pass them on to their own children. So that's where that passion comes from. I really wanted to target the younger generation because they are the future scientists, the future leaders, the future politicians. And if they're more 
unconsciously care about the environment, the decisions that they make are going to lead us into more of a sustainable future that, you know, isn't just beneficial to their generation, but also benefiting generations to come. So, yeah, that's why we sort of have really targeted the younger generation. You know, and even with older generations as well, that a lot of the parents that complete our program with their children, they are learning so much at this stage as well. So it's really special that we can impact not just the younger generation, but also the older generation. And then that joins that connection between parent and child or teacher and student as well. We try and make sure that all our content, as well as, yes, educating kids on some issues that can be, you know, a little bit confronting when you're learning about things like extinction rates and um, climate change, but we try and make it so it's very, very positive. So the children walk away feeling empowered and they know that they can make a difference. And we try and give them the tools to make small changes in their daily life that is, you know, is something that the parents can do that's cheap, it's easy, it's not like a huge task that's going to be too hard and, you know, just gets pushed aside. So we try and make it as easy as possible for the families to actually implement change as well. Kind of the original spark behind actually even starting my own business was watching the documentary Shark Water and seeing sort of the passion of Rob Stewart um, and how he converted something that he loved into educating others on an issue that we're so unaware of. I think that everybody has a choice to decide what kind of impact they want to make on the world. And for me, um, I've always been interested in conservation and biology and like the preservation of species. And I've also been very creative. So this business was a way of combining both passions into an area that I feel like I can make a difference in. I find that was a huge journey for me and continues to be a huge journey um, because as someone that's very creative, you know, I have design all the graphics, I have the passion for the conservation, but I was so out of my depth in terms of running a business. Someone listening to this who might themselves be an entrepreneur with an environmental idea and not knowing how to turn it into a business, have you got any messages for those people who are on that early stage of their journey? There's a zeitgeist moment going on where the broader community, business and people understand threats to and benefits to supporting Australia's wildlife. So just talk to anyone. There are a whole lot of partners. We know that corporate Australia is ready to get on board and join forces and and try and do some good in this area, just to do good. My advice is just to get out there and talk to as many people as possible and build momentum and build community around the idea and make it happen on as big a scale as possible. One of the most powerful messages I saw was actually delivered in a speech by Emma Watson. And she said, if not you, then who? And if not now, then when? And I think that's such a powerful line because if you've got the idea and you've got the skills and you've got the passion, it's literally just having the courage to put it out there. And there's so many um, amazing programs like this one that can support you. Through the Wild Idea program, I've, I've been able to connect with a lot of like-minded people and we're all in it to learn something different and we all gain something from each other as well. But yeah, as long as you have that passion there and keep pushing for your idea, I think you'll succeed with it. This podcast has been produced by The Grow Love Project with support from the New South Wales Government's Saving Our Species program. To hear more episodes, make sure to subscribe to this podcast 
And for more info about the Saving Our Species program, visit savingourspecies.online slash podcast. Thanks for listening.